So what upset this whole system? Where did the revolution come from? Youth movement, a community of friends, is what triggered the revolution. This is for everyone who is far away from home but close to it at the same time. Diaspora Babes is the art you make, the art you love, and the arc of justice. We are brown, beautiful, queer, struggling, thriving, too much, too loved, and too loving. My name is Amal and I'm a Yemeni Lebanese artist living in Paris and this is Diaspora Babes, love letters to myself and you. Dear Diaspora Babe, your friends are how we will win. I hope you're spending time with your chosen family around the holidays, people who make you feel loved, held, and seen. If you're with your family of birth and you don't feel these things, please take some time to call your besties, your chosen family, those who hold you with respect, honor, and love. You deserve to be whole and seen in your wholeness. And the truth is, many of us don't receive that from our birth families. So this is an episode about friends, real and imaginary. Imaginary friends like Hermione Granger, Ron Weasley, and Harry Potter. Yes, I'm going to be talking about Harry Potter. Maybe that just cued a major eye roll or a nerdgasm of delight. If you're a Harry Potter stan like me, wonderful! If you don't like Harry Potter, stay for a solid literary analysis and the vital lessons about the banality of evil, how pervasive supremacist ideologies lead to fascist governments, and how your friends are the key to the revolution. Note, I will be dropping minor spoilers, but I won't be revealing any major plot twists. I grew up with the Harry Potter series, maybe you did too, and I continue to visit the book semi-regularly through the audiobooks. I turn to Harry Potter books when I'm in a new place or feeling particularly lost because they anchor me in my childhood home. On some of the most recent re-listens, I realized I had experienced a huge paradigm shift in the way I understand the book's central conflict. And that shift has everything to do with growing up and watching the rise of a neo-fascist regime in the US. In this episode, I'm going to be diving into fascism, isolation versus connection, and how your friends and community with other diaspora babes is the key to revolution and surviving. I used to see the Harry Potter books as about this big conflict between Harry and this one big baddie, Voldemort, who comes in and tries to destroy the good of the wizarding world by taking all the power for himself and killing those who resisted. Now, I see things differently. Rather than Voldemort as an external evil force oppressing the wizarding world, I see the Death Eaters and Voldemort as a product of the wizarding world. The seven Harry Potter books don't just chronicle one boy's coming of age, but rather offer a personal view of a civil war for the soul of the wizarding world. It's a conflict of interest between the Death Eaters, who are basically trying to institutionalize a supremacist regime, and the development of a more egalitarian world organized by magical ability rather than blood status. Around the Death Eaters' grab for power, the wizarding world has a choice to make. Will it be a supremacist world? 
will they hold on to quote-unquote traditional principles that are just aristocratic hierarchies based on the purity of blood? Voldemort and his personal obsession with conquering death just happened to capitalize and catalyze the cataclysmic shift occurring in the wizarding world. So yeah, I'm bringing a structural analysis to Harry Potter. The books don't offer this directly. This is for a couple of reasons. Harry, the person who we view the story from, doesn't have much of a structural analysis. This is partly because he's a kid, and I feel like kids aren't taught to grasp structural analysis. For kids and many adults, it's all very personal. This person is mean to me, this person hurt me, this person is nice, she helps me. For Harry, the whole thing is about himself and how he has to defeat Voldemort to save the wizarding world. The lack of structural analysis is also because J.K. Rowling, the liberal white woman who wrote the series, doesn't have a super great structural analysis of global oppression and hierarchy either. But this really is a great opportunity to talk about some of my guiding principles for interpreting art. A work of art is more than the sum of its creator or the creator's subjectivity. By their subjectivity, I mean their specific consciousness, agency, personal experience, and limits. This isn't to say that you separate the art from the artist and go consume work by abusers and fucked up white men carte blanche. Rather, an artist is a channel for the collective, and an art piece can be read as a cultural document for times, places, and ideas that aren't directly considered or articulated by the artist. Basically, you can talk about stuff regarding a work of art even if the author or creator never had it in mind or never admitted to having it in mind. If you can build an argument in the text, you can run with your idea, and other people can argue with you about it to their heart's content. You, diaspora babe, can read yourself into works that never had you in mind. You can develop a relationship with texts, including literature, images, and films that don't have anyone who looks like you or has shared your exact history. Now, I'm not saying this is always a good idea or suggesting we always have to relate to canons that exclude us, but you can if you want. An artwork exists outside of its narrowly defined bounds, the 300 pages of a book, the two hours of a movie. Art exists in the relationship that you have with it. Your interpretation and vision of an artwork is part of the piece itself. So yeah, Hermione is black and Sirius and Lupin were totally gay for each other. Anyway, when the Death Eater regime takes over in the seventh book, we see the true colors of adults in the wizarding world. People are either too afraid to resist as explicitly as is explicitly stated by the book, or their passive acceptance of the regime or refusal to take action or take a stance allows the violent supremacist regime to flourish. Sounds pretty familiar, huh? The Death Eaters are constantly described as relying on the way terror can make people isolate and turn on each other. So Death Eaters have taken over the Daily Prophet too? Asked Hermione furiously. Lupin nodded. But surely people realize what's going on. The coup has been smooth and virtually silent, said Lupin. Naturally, many people have deduced what has happened. There has been a dramatic change in ministry policy in the last few days, and many are whispering that Voldemort must be behind it. However, that is the point. They whisper. They daren't confide in each other, not knowing whom to trust. They are scared to speak out, in case their suspicions are true and their families are targeted. Yes, Voldemort is playing a very clever game. Declaring himself might have provoked open rebellion. 
remaining masked has created confusion, uncertainty, and fear. But I think it goes beyond that. The Death Eater regime is only able to take so much hold because Voldemort and the Death Eater supremacist ideology is part of the fabric of the Wizarding World. Much like the US is founded on white supremacy and genocide, the Wizarding World is structured by hierarchical separation, us and them, wizards and muggles. So while people might be terrified of the Death Eaters, the average wizard also tacitly accepts that while their methods are terrifying, their general principles are relatively in line with their own. In fact, the majority of the wizarding world goes about its life, albeit in fear, terror, and distrust, while their neighbors are murdered and dragged off to prison. This is why the Ministry of Magic continues to function with the majority of its employees despite the fascist supremacist Death Eater takeover. Many don't just observe, they act profit from the disappearing and murder of their fellows. From the Magic is Might chapter in Book 7, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione have infiltrated the Ministry in disguise, someone turns to Harry, who has the appearance of a Death Eater for the time, and says, The wizard leaned toward Harry, leering and muttered, Dirk Cresswell, eh? From the Goblin Liaison? Nice one, Albert. I'm pretty confident I'll get his job now. People are literally getting raises, job opportunities, and profiting from the murder and disappearing of their neighbors and co-workers. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione impersonate three ministry members in that chapter, we get a nice little breakdown of people's part in the regime. The three, the three of them impersonate three different ministry members. Hermione becomes Mafalda Hopkirk, someone who we've actually encountered earlier when she writes a letter to Harry in book two. We don't know her politics, but seemingly she's someone who cooperates with the regime. Hermione, disguised as Mafalda, is actually asked to take part of the trials of Muggleborns who are being targeted by the regime. Reg Cattermole, who is impersonated by Ron Weasley, seems to be going along fine at work until his wife gets called in for questioning, and he shows up, trusting the system to be fair. The third person, the one impersonated by Harry, is Albert Runcorn, an active supporter of the Death Eaters regime. So this gives us a nice little breakdown. We have one-third active perpetrators, one-third passive bystanders, and one-third victims, and a small percentage of active resistors. With that breakdown, what do you get? A world where a supremacist regime takes over, surviving on domination and murder, only possible because some people just go along with it. Even if only a third of the people are the ones who are supposedly actively perpetrating that regime, if the majority of the population accepts it or is okay with the values and just quibbles or is afraid of the methods, that's what you get. Business as usual is not an acceptable option in situations like this. So, so far I haven't necessarily been hitting you over the head with like piece by piece comparisons, but I hope you're seeing the parallels um, between what's been going on in the book and between um, the political situation, at least in the US right now. While Trump is fucked up, the most fucked up thing about the situation is the support he has. It's the relatively mainstream support he has. And the fact that the Republican Party, who when he came around treated his ideas with ridicule, are now fucking flipping over in circles to support every single thing he says. And half of the reason that the, that the Democrats are freaking out is because 
they are worried about the legitimacy of the U.S. system and their potential for power. It's not so much. It's not really that they they have a concern for the way that Trump and his policies and his government um is directly like against the rights of working class, black and brown, and even white people, or the way that he is moving like against global justice. Basically, it's not that for them. It's about their power. They're too busy being like, oh my God, how shocking (laughs) to think about the implications that this movement has for the U.S. Racialized people in the U.S., particularly indigenous people and black people, have always known that the U.S. is a really fucked up place for racialized people, for race, right? But I think that for a lot of bourgeois white liberals especially, it took the election of Trump to really wake them up to the world that they're living in, right? They're like, (laughs) what? I thought the U.S. was about freedom (laughs) and social mobility, which just kind of shows the fantasy world that they're living in. But I think for Harry Potter, in some ways it took the rise of Voldemort for the true colors of the wizarding world to show, which is a world that is organized along constructed differences in the wizarding world, the construction of so-called pure blood, to keep power among the few. So I hope you can see the parallels, right? That something that's supposedly like this out of the blue, nowhere, all these bad guys are the one who are coming up with these ideas and taking over is a myth in both cases. And if you can see how it's a myth in Harry Potter, then I hope you can see how it's a myth like in the US population as well. And the point is, is that this myth of this out of left field, like or out of right field in this case, force that's coming and they're the problem really is a distraction. It's a smokescreen for the fact that they're a product of the system. And it's the system has enmeshed all of us that's actually the problem. I don't know, maybe none of you believe, but some people genuinely believe that it's like Trump is out of line with American values. And... You know, the the U.S. is a colonial project. He is U.S. values. Anyway, back to Harry Potter, and I hope you're going to be keeping your eyes out or your ears out for the parallels as I continue. We're mainly aligned with Harry and the Order of the Phoenix, so we don't realize how much of a minority the Order of the Phoenix is. 20 or so adults dedicated to fighting the supremacist regime the Death Eaters seek to instill. We see that the abuse of power, corruption, and supremacist ideology permeates the world, the wizarding world, even in earlier books. Dolores Umbridge works at Hogwarts, tortures children, yet continues to work at the ministry when she's fired from Hogwarts. Though not a Death Eater, she takes a primary role in the regime when the Death Eaters take over. Lucius Malfoy deploys class and blood privilege and is embraced by the former minister Cornelius Fudge. Remember that moment in book four when Harry goes from seeing Fudge as bungling but good-natured to a stooge for injustice? I quote, Harry couldn't believe what he was hearing. He had always thought of Fudge as a kindly figure, a little blustering, a little pompous, but essentially good-natured. But now, a short, 
angry wizard stood before him, refusing point blank to accept the prospect of disruption in his comfortable and ordered world. Fudge doesn't want his world to be disrupted and his power in the system to be disrupted, but also he gives a fuck ton about the purity of blood. Like he actually has a lot of values that are in line with the Death Eaters. Where he draws the line is he doesn't want the population terrorized and murdered at large. But the actual system is something that he's okay with, as we see with his close connections to Lucius Malfoy, right? And Lucius Malfoy doesn't try to conceal at all how much he has disdain and disgust for people who aren't purebloods, right? This problem in the wizarding world has been shown many times before in the earlier books. Dumbledore knows the difference between someone who actively seeks justice and stands against injustice and someone who just wants to be comfortable and maintain the status quo. This comes to a head in the fourth book in the chapter The Parting of the Way. It really took Voldemort rising to power for people to show their true colors. You are blinded, said Dumbledore, his voice rising now, the aura of power around him palpable, his eyes blazing once more. By the love you hold, Cornelius, you place too much importance, and you always have done, on the so-called purity of blood. You fail to recognize that it matters not what someone is born, but what they grow to be. Your Dementor has just destroyed the last remaining member of a pure-blood family as old as any. And see what that man chose to make of his life. I tell you now, take the steps I have suggested, and you will be remembered, in office or out, as one of the bravest and greatest ministers of magic we have ever known. Fail to act, and history will remember you as the man who stepped aside and allowed Voldemort a second chance to destroy the world we have tried to rebuild. While the entirety of the fifth book is portrayed as the ministry denying Voldemort's return, I see them as actively working with the interests of the Death Eaters and Voldemort by allowing the supremacist insurrection to gain power and safety, right? They're spending their whole time trying to discredit Dumbledore and Harry and spread misinformation by their control of the press to actually deal with the problem, right? And just because, you know, they think that Voldemort's and the Death Eaters aren't like alive and kicking doesn't mean they're not actually supporting them through their actions, right? The government is not here to save us, right? <laughs> the government is an arm of supremacist ideology. The government is there to control, maintain the current po power hierarchies we have, serving the interests of white supremacy and rich capitalists, right? And that's what we have in our world. And in the world of Harry Potter, the government is there to maintain the status quo and the power of purebloods, right? So what upset this whole system? Where did the revolution come from? Youth movement, a community of friends, is what triggered the revolution. Not adults, not the hardened warriors of the Order of the Phoenix, not even the chosen Harry Potter at the center of the story. Harry's secret arrival at the occupied Hogwarts was the spark that lit the fire of the revolution. Neville Longbottom lets the rest of Dumbledore's army, which is the group of students formed in response to the ministry's attempt to control and neutralize the Hogwarts population. So Neville lets Dumbledore's army know that they're going to make a fight at Hogwarts. And the people from the student group tell the Order of the Phoenix, which is the adult resistance group 
who then descend upon Hogwarts. This was really made clear to me in the moment when Mrs. Weasley is fighting her teenage daughter, telling her she has to like abstain from the battle, right? You're underage, Mrs. Weasley shouted at her daughter as Harry approached. I won't permit it. The boys, yes, but you, you've got to go home. I won't. Ginny's hair flew as she pulled her arm out of her mother's grip. I'm in Dumbledore's army. A teenager's gang. A teenager's gang that's about to take him on, which no one else has dared to do, said Fred. Fred is right. Like I talked about earlier, no one else was openly organizing direct action against the regime. It was the youth who popped off first. The rest of the resistance followed. Harry couldn't do it alone. He never could have done it alone. Not even Harry, Ron, and Hermione and Dumbledore. The uprising of the wizarding world was needed. And it wasn't even the Order of the Phoenix, the adults who had planned the insurrection. The teachers at Hogwarts didn't even dare take on Voldemort. Despite the torture of the children and the desecration of the educational institution, until Harry and the rest of Dumbledore's army showed up as willing to fight. Battle of Hogwarts, which was sparked by Dumbledore's army and Harry and, and his friends, was one of the only on-purpose open confrontations between the supporters of the Death Eaters regime and those who stood against it. And remember, Harry wasn't even planning this. Harry, like, is just being swept along. Remember, Harry thinks that this is about him and Voldemort. That's it. And he had to, like, learn that that's not really how this thing, what this thing is about or how things work. So what's the plan, Harry? said George. There isn't one, said Harry, still disoriented by the sudden appearance of all these people, unable to take everything in while his scar was still burning so fiercely. Just going to make it up as we go along, are we? My favorite kind, said Fred. You've got to stop this, Harry told Neville. What did you call all them back for? This is insane. We're fighting, aren't we? Said Dean, taking out his fake galleon. The message said Harry was back and we were going to fight. Ron turned suddenly to Harry. Why can't they help? What? They can help. He dropped his voice and said so that none of them could hear but Hermione, who stood between them. We don't know where it is. We've got to find it fast. We don't have to tell them it's a horcrux. Harry looked from Ron to Hermione, who murmured, I think Ron's right. We don't even know what we're looking for. We need them. And when Harry looked unconvinced, you don't have to do everything alone, Harry. Harry thought fast, his scar still prickling, his head threatened to split again. Dumbledore had warned him against telling anyone but Ron and Hermione about the Horcruxes. Secrets and lies, that's how we grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. Was he turning into Dumbledore, keeping his secrets clutched to his chest, afraid to trust? But Dumbledore had trusted Snape, and where had that led? To murder at the top of the highest tower. All right, he said quietly to the other two. The moment the revolution is triggered is also a personal turning point for Harry. Harry has to decide to receive the help from his friends. Poor dumbass Harry always thinks he has to do things alone. We all know he has a hero complex, but his hero complex comes from trauma. His parents were murdered, he was raised by an abusive stepfamily. He grows up from a very young age with the truth that he is alone, isolated, destined to bear hardship without the support of others. Because of how he was raised, because of his childhood, this is one of his core beliefs, one of the foundations of his personality and how he moves throughout the world. And like most of the toxic habits we have, it originated as a survival strategy. But he has to let go of this and receive the love and support of his friends to embrace wholeness instead 
instead of woundedness. You can clearly see his trauma talking to him throughout the novel. I have to do this alone. Like, this is just me. I can't tell anyone. Oh my god, I can't deal with this. <laughs> he, like, really has a hard time when people are trying to, like, help him. <sighs> Embracing love and wholeness equals death and ruin. That's his trauma talking. And I know you have trauma talking to you too like that. Learning how to receive love from friends is really hard. Many of us isolate ourselves when we're down, stressed, depressed, let alone reaching out for texts. We ignore texts from our friends, even nice ones. We don't return phone calls. We cancel social hangouts. The lack of connection just confirms your underlying belief that you're alone. I know I've done all of these things when I've been depressed or when I've been feeling alone and the lack of connection that I facilitated just confirms my underlying belief that I was alone. And I think below myself isolating tendencies when I'm in depressive episodes, I have the belief that I don't deserve friends' love. They were there offering it. I just had to receive it. And receiving love is incredibly hard for us, as it was hard for Harry. I will add that receiving love and connection doesn't just pertain to living people too. Harry draws on the strength, love, and guidance of his immediate ancestors to get him through his last most major challenging. You have that too, right? Like, even, even when you don't have your friends around you, you have your ancestors, and they're hanging out rooting for you, so just like... <laughs> Open your heart to them. Open your heart and like let them know that, you know, that you like receive their love and they're gonna give it to you. As my friend Alex says, you need to have your bruja crew around you, the circle of people who are intuitively tuned into your wellness, looking after you and giving your support, your friends who will swoop in when you're being harassed, who will follow you to bathrooms if you need, come over to your place when you're feeling suicidal, light candles for you on their altars, and show up. We'll show up for you when shit gets real, because shit gets real. I bring all of this up because the lessons are highly relevant for us right now. The US is undergoing some deep transformation and soul searching, though in my opinion it's not deep enough yet. The US is approaching its Pluto return in 2022. So that's when Pluto returns to the same spot that it was when the US was founded. Uh, Pluto is all about power, abuse, wealth. And because it's in Capricorn, that means it's especially about patriarchy, hierarchy, and material accumulation, as well as epic daddy issues. You know we have troubled relationships with the quote-unquote founding fathers. Parental issues are part of the fabric of U.S. society. So don't worry, it's not just you. But as the U.S. nears its Pluto return, the U.S. is going to have to come to terms with all the dark parts of its history. Jessica Lanyadu has talked a little bit about this, and that's, you know, she's the one that kind of brought this to my attention. And so as the U.S. has to come to terms with who it is and its history and what it's going to be in the future, some of the lessons that I'm drawing from the book are highly relevant to decolonizing and shaping the sort of world that we want to exist. The amount of transformative justice work that the wizarding world is going to have to do is enormous. I mean, at the very end of the book, you have the Malfoys sitting like around, like not sure if they belong um, when everyone's celebrating the, you know, the defeat. <laughs> 
when everyone's celebrating the defeat of Voldemort, people who directly benefited from murder and imprisonment, what are, what are we going to do with them? What about the people who did nothing? What about the people who passively supported things? Like, they're going to have to do some major fucking work. And so are we. We know if Hermione, for example, transforms the wizarding, wizarding justice system after the books are finished, hopefully she introduces some of the things that are woefully absent from the book, like lawyers, rights, and habeas corpus, since... <laughs> yeah. Like many my age, the series about Harry navigating friends, evil, both banal and lurid, and mortality in the wizarding world, shaped my sense of ethics, values, and fun. The fight against evil in the book isn't so much about good versus bad, but love versus fear, acceptance of mortality or rejection of it, doing what is just versus doing what is easy. And it illustrates that in the fight against fascism, the fight to create new, just, egalitarian worlds, we're in a struggle between connection and isolation, passive acceptance and active organization. You and your friends have a variety of skill sets and resources among you. Call on them. Call on them when you need support. Receive it when it's offered. Give it back. If the media cycle or the directly fucked up things you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis with discrimination, the police, etc. have you feeling like you're facing the world alone, call in the love from your friends. It will help sustain you for another day. But here's the main takeaway. Youth movement based off critical connections are key to revolution. Community and critical connection is key. Isolation, all for myself mindsets, are destructive and lead to fascism flourishing. And one of the essential things to community and critical connection is accepting love. Accepting love is really hard. Trauma gets in the way of this as well as social conditioning and a lot of other shit. But you gotta get over it. Recognize the way you isolate yourself and block your blessings from your friends and loved ones. We're in the midst of a soul battle, like in Harry Potter, so get to those critical connections. Government can't save us. Birth families might not. Get to community building. Invest in those friendships. You are not alone. Love, Amal. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you so much the response to the first episode and to the creation of this whole project has just meant so so much to me you guys are so incredible and are the reason that i'm doing this um i have to thank a lot of my friends for talking me through all of the ideas that um you're you're, you're hearing now or i've heard before or will hear in the future specifically i talked to my friend Alex Mendez and, and another friend Jaco Yo as, as well as Clover Powell. The music you've heard is by Leil Omaran and the writing and recording and performing is all by me. My reference text by JK Rowling in this, um, mostly from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, as well as a little bit from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, so thank you so
so much. Please keep listening. I welcome your feedback. You know, if you download the Anchor app, you can actually send me voice messages with your thoughts and I can play them on the podcast as well. So yeah, please keep sending me, please keep sending me the DMs and messages. Your support means so much. I'm really eager to hear what you guys think. I was a little kind of hesitant to nerd out about Harry Potter in front of all of you guys. So in in front of all of you all. So thanks for listening and um, bearing through with me. My nerd was definitely showing in this episode. Remember, you can send me an email at diasporababes at gmail.com or follow on Instagram and slide into the DMs at diasporababes. Yeah, so thank you so much. This has been Diaspora Babes. Keep safe, keep faith. Until next Friday. Thank you.